Hello, and welcome to Teacher in Zion Podcast, a podcast for Christians, Mormons, ex-Mormons, and other Book of Mormon believers, or anyone questioning their faith or the church, with an emphasis on seeking the truth wherever it leads, but especially in gaining a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. I am your host, Teacher in Zion, and this is episode 12 of the podcast, entitled, Book of Mormon Prophecies That Came True. There was a time in my life where my belief in the Book of Mormon was held aloft by nothing more than the witness that I'd received by way of the Holy Spirit. Although that was sufficient for me, having witnessed also that the good fruit that can be born from the pages of that book for those who actually hold to the truths contained therein, rather than just the traditions of the church and some of the, let's say, contradictory doctrines that later emerged among the Latter-day Saints. Regardless of the many testimonies I received as I studied the words of the Book of Mormon, I will not lie to you and pretend that there were not times when the purported lack of historical or archaeological evidence for this record would weigh heavy upon me. Ultimately, I would lift up those concerns to God in prayer, letting him know that I believed in the Book of Mormon because his spirit bore witness to the truths therein. But I would ask him to help me to understand those things that appeared to run contrary to my testimony. Being perfectly honest, I never cared for apologetics. I generally steered clear books that attempted to defend the faith, even if they can present a decent counter-defense to some of the criticisms leveled against the Book of Mormon by its detractors. I knew they had no real answers for my own personal concerns. I would look at books regarding the supposed archaeological evidences for the Book of Mormon and see these photographs of Central American pyramids, sacrificial altars, and carvings that often appeared, at least to me, to be demonic in nature. And I could not reconcile the fact that the culture behind these images seemed to carry with them a radically different feeling and a different spirit in contrast to the text found within the pages of the Book of Mormon. Professional archaeologists who studied these ruins and published papers on the ancient cultures who built them revealed a different story from that told in the Book of Mormon. Even the dates given for when these ancient civilizations existed just didn't correspond with the historical account of the Nephite record. I did my best to set aside any doubts and content myself to hold fast to the testimony given to me by the Holy Spirit. And some years later, I was invited to see an LDS man speak at a local RLDS congregation. It was a presentation on the Book of Mormon geography, and his name was Wayne May. And what was revealed in that presentation began to answer all of those burning questions I had. Just to touch on a few things, I would learn how Joseph Smith and others who assisted him in the work of bringing forth the Book of Mormon had testified and documented from the very beginning that the Book of Mormon lands were here in North America, that they extended from the state of New York to the Mississippi Valley, 
and that the Nephites were, in fact, the mound builders. This knowledge came to Joseph from Moroni, and Joseph related this to numerous people while he was translating the Book of Mormon, and also afterwards, chronicled while marching with Zion's camp in June of 1834. Joseph Smith and the brethren, quote, visited many of the mounds, and in a letter to his wife, Emma, he spoke of himself and the other brethren, quote, wandering over the plains of the Nephites, end quote. On one occasion, several of the brethren remembered Joseph having identified the bones of a Lamanite warrior who had died in battle. Archaeologists today recognize this event as the first documented archaeological excavation in the Illinois River Valley. Suddenly, the pieces began to fall into place. While the Nephites did not build pyramids, it is recorded that they dug defensive trenches and heaped the earth up to build earthen walls. And atop the walls of earth, they erected walls constructed of wooden posts and towers. The remnants of many such walls, cities, burial mounds, and military forts, which were, according to professional archaeologists, built by the mound builders and numbering in the many hundreds throughout the eastern half of the United States. Why were we looking at Central America? I later found out how our attention got diverted that way. And it's understandable, and I don't blame anyone. And I also understand that some very good people have invested a lot of years and effort in the Central America model. Does that mean we may have wrongly told some people they were Lamanites? Possibly. But bringing them to a knowledge of the Savior makes such missionary efforts unwasted. I would not expend energy contending over the geography of the Book of Mormon. Look at the evidence and decide for yourself. Even so, I don't think we can be content to say that it doesn't really matter where the narrative of the Book of Mormon actually took place. When the church says one thing, but the scientific evidence and findings of professional archaeologists say something else, people have been known to have lost their faith over such matters. An additional detail I would toss out there for your consideration is that all of those sacrificial altars in Central America have steps going up to them, while the sacrificial altars in North America all have ramps leading up. No stairs. Why is this significant? Keep in mind that the Book of Mormon tells us that the Nephites kept the Law of Moses until the time when Christ visited them. When archaeologists in the Middle East discover an altar, they can tell the difference between an altar built by the ancient Israelites and the altars belonging to the other surrounding civilizations. The ancient Hebrew altars all have ramps, while the Canaanite and other pagan civilizations in the Middle East all have steps. The reason that is significant is that the Law of Moses expressly forbid the use of stairs at an altar. The Nephites, having the brass plates and containing the Law of Moses, testify in their record that they kept the Law of Moses. Therefore, their altars would have ramps. It may also be of interest to note that over the years, a number of chiefs 
from multiple North American tribes have made statements in regards to their knowledge of the mound builders. And they have told us that they were, quote, light-skinned Indians who once lived here, but that their ancestors had killed them off long ago. The parallel here to the Book of Mormon narrative could not be any clearer. I spent a number of years growing up around Chillicothe, Ohio. I remember the school taking field trips to Mound City. And inside the visitor center, you can read about the two great civilizations who once occupied this land. And they are the Adena culture, which appeared, flourished, and then disappeared abruptly. Followed by the Hopewell culture, that likewise appeared, flourished for a time, and then abruptly disappeared altogether. When you consider the dates that modern archaeology places on these two civilizations, who also left behind many hundreds of significant archaeological sites, these dates line up fairly closely with the timelines of the Book of Mormon. The earlier Adena culture could be the Jaredites, while the Hopewell culture runs parallel with the timeline of the Nephites. According to the Book of Mormon, both of these civilizations were suddenly wiped out, which agrees with what archaeologists say about the Adena and the Hopewell cultures. Archaeology puts the end date of the Hopewell culture at at approximately 500 CE, whereas estimates taken from the writings of the Book of Mormon put the end of the Nephite culture at around 420 CE. That's pretty close by archaeological standards. And this would have been the end of the main body of people who identified as Nephites. But we know from the text that there were many breakaway groups among the Nephites, including those who were more righteous, who separated themselves out from the main body. There are some that believe that it may have taken a decade or two more before the Lamanites ultimately managed to wipe out all remaining vestiges of the Nephite culture. But in any case, when dealing with archaeology, such dates are only estimates. We cannot be exact. But these dates, the end of the Hopewell culture and the end of the Nephite culture, is very close. And in addition to this, books have been written on the many, many parallels between the Hopewell and the Nephite cultures. Since learning of those things, I have now seen thousands of pieces of archaeological and historic evidence that supports the narrative of the Book of Mormon. And we could spend dozens of episodes of this podcast talking about it. But if you go out to YouTube and search for Wayne May, or you can search the Heartland Model or the Heartland Theory of the Book of Mormon Geography, you will find plenty of videos and people smarter than myself, who can give you many hours worth of details on this subject. But what I would like to briefly share about today is another type of evidence for the truth of the Book of Mormon that has since stood out and presented itself to me. Evidence that is contained within the text itself. Information that Joseph Smith could have had no knowledge of in his day. There are a number of things we can get into within that particular framework, and we may do so in later episodes. But today, I want to focus specifically on some prophecies contained in the Book of Mormon that had not yet come to pass when the Book of Mormon was published, nor were they even fulfilled during the time when Joseph Smith lived, but have since come to pass. 
I don't think too many people really think very deeply about these particular prophecies because they have so obviously come to pass and long enough in our past that we imagine such statements in the Book of Mormon to be rather obvious. We don't think much about it without really stopping to consider how they were absolutely uncertain and could not actually be known in Joseph Smith's day. Today, we will focus on three prophetic statements found in the Book of Mormon. This first one is out of 1 Nephi. If you have an RLDS Book of Mormon, it's going to be found in chapter 3 of 1 Nephi, beginning at verse 176, or in the LDS, it is chapter 13, beginning in verse 29. This prophecy is speaking specifically of the Gentiles who come out of Europe to North America seeking liberty. Nephi reports that he had a vision of these things and that an angel explained the vision and stated the following, quote, And because of these things, which are taken away from the gospel of the Lamb, an exceeding great many do stumble, yea, insomuch that Satan has great power over them. End quote. This prophecy is speaking about the lack of absolute clarity among the Gentiles in regards to what is actually taught in the Bible, showing that there would be some confusion and debate, even contention over doctrine that opinion would vary and that there would be errors made in their understanding, which would affect their spiritual welfare. Joseph Smith could plainly see that this was the case in his day. So this is not the prophecy I wish to point out, but it does provide some context for the prophecy we're about to examine. So let us continue. Quote, Nevertheless, thou beholdest that the Gentiles which have gone forth out of captivity and have been lifted up by the power of God above all other nations. Upon the face of this land, which is choice above all other lands. End quote. Now, this is a prophecy that was beyond Joseph's ability to observe or predict. Now, think about this. He translated the Book of Mormon in 1828. The War of 1812 had begun just 16 years before this time. In August of 1814, British troops burned Washington, the capital of the United States. We were not yet a superpower, and certainly not above all other nations in power, as the Book of Mormon states. Far from it, any number of European nations, including England, France, and Spain would continue to remain much more powerful than the U.S., and up to this point, history would suggest that we only barely survived our disputes with these nations, with help from other more powerful nations. England helped us fight off France, and later France helped us fight off England. These allies, along with the vast ocean between us that provided a bit of protection, how we managed to survive up to this point. When Joseph was translating this record, the United States wasn't even the nation that we see on our map today. The Louisiana Purchase had just taken place a mere 25 years before the translation of the Book of Mormon, and the western portion of North America would still be owned by Mexico 
until 1848, which included what would later become Colorado, New Mexico, California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and Wyoming. The United States was far from powerful. She was growing and expanding, and she was becoming an economic force in the world, but we're still a very long ways from even beginning to imagine we would someday become the most powerful nation on earth. In fact, Great Britain would continue to be so vast and powerful even into the 20th century that for two centuries a popular saying was that the sun never set on the British Empire, and technically it did not. Britain had colonies in Canada, India, Australia, New Zealand, parts of South America, and Africa. Officially, the United States would not become a recognized world power until 1898. That's 54 years after the death of Joseph Smith, and a full 70 years after the Book of Mormon was published. But this prophecy does not predict the United States would become a world power. It predicts that it would be lifted up in power above all other nations. The third prophecy that we will look at in a moment will build on this. But in truth, the United States did not even begin to become a true superpower until after World War I, in large part because most of Europe was absolutely devastated by the end of the Great War, whereas the United States was largely unaffected and was able to experience an industrial boom because of us supplying our allies during the war. In truth, it is not until the end of World War II when we defeated Japan, thanks in large part to being the very first to manufacture the atomic bomb. Only then, after gaining nuclear weapons and the economic boom of the 1950s, did the United States become lifted up as a true superpower above all other nations of the earth. This is something Joseph Smith couldn't have possibly known would happen. For our second prophecy, we'll look at First Nephi again, third chapter of the RLDS edition, beginning in verse 177, and in the LDS edition, chapter 3, beginning in verse 30. This is speaking of the land of promise, which we have established is the same land that the United States now occupies. And the angel tells Nephi, quote, which is the land which the Lord God has covenanted with thy father, that his seed should have for the land of their inheritance. End quote. This is speaking of Lehi's seed, which we know to be the Native Americans. And jumping back into the prophecy, I quote, Wherefore, thou seest that the Lord God will not suffer that the Gentiles will utterly destroy the mixture of thy seed, which is among thy brethren, this is speaking of the Nephites. Neither will he suffer that the Gentiles should destroy the seed of thy brethren. This is speaking of the Lamanites. It may be a horrible thing to contemplate, but at this point in history, when Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon, and when looking at the tragic interactions, broken treaties, wars, and at times outright attempted genocide on the part of the white man against the Indian, the way things were going 
we did not appear to be content with the idea that both the white man and native tribes could occupy the same land. It was us or them. Wherever we went, they were pushed out or killed, and the white man was pressing into every territory and land that existed on this continent. President Andrew Jackson would soon sign into law the Indian Removal Act of 1830, further pushing Native Americans out of their own lands, killing those who would not comply, and causing immense suffering and death even among those who peacefully complied with the orders. The Cherokee Trail of Tears would be just one of the many disastrous results of this policy. Pushed out west beyond the Mississippi River for now, Everyone knew that the white men planned to continue pushing further into the West until they occupied every corner of the continent. And based on how things had gone up to this point, there was a very real possibility that there would someday be no Indians left. However, in the Book of Mormon, the angel of the Lord tells Nephi that God will not allow them to be utterly destroyed, but that he would preserve them. And this is, once again, a prophecy that Joseph could not know or predict for certain. There are many very detailed prophecies in the Book of Mormon about what will happen to the seed of Lehi. It details how they will one day spiritually awaken, awake to the knowledge of who they are and the covenants made with their fathers that they would come unto a knowledge of Christ and would rise again and become a great power, and that this land would forever be a land of promise to them to thrive on, that the Gentiles in this land could stay only if they repented and joined with the seed of Lehi to assist them in their efforts. And although these great prophecies have yet to be fulfilled, we are already beginning to see the signs that these things are beginning to come to pass. And we could spend several episodes just covering that topic. But moving on to the third and final Book of Mormon prophecy that I wanted to cover regarding what was to happen in this land of promise, the land of the Nephites, we will now turn to Second Nephi, If you have the RLDS edition of the Book of Mormon, it is chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. And in the LDS edition, it is chapter 1, verse 7. But behold, this land, saith God, shall be a land of thine inheritance. This is speaking to the seed of Lehi, which today we believe to be the Native Americans. Continuing on here, it says... And the Gentiles shall be blessed upon the land, and this land shall be a land of liberty unto the Gentiles. Okay, so this much Joseph Smith would certainly be aware of, but continuing on in the prophecy, and I quote, And there shall be no kings upon the land which shall raise up unto the Gentiles. Now this is an interesting statement. Keep in mind that just 16 years before Joseph translated the Book of Mormon, the country narrowly evaded a disastrous outcome with England. Certainly, Joseph may have boldly asserted that through the grace of God, the king of England would never be able to subdue this young nation. But he could not be certain, nor could anyone be absolutely certain that this great experiment of democracy would not fail. 
that some future president or general wouldn't become a dictator or refuse to abdicate the office in an election. But so far, it hasn't happened. But let us continue. And I quote, And I will fortify this land against all other nations. And he that fighteth against Zion shall perish, saith God. For he that raises up a king against me shall perish. For I, the Lord, the King of heaven, will be their king. And I will be a light unto them forever that hear my words. End quote. Okay, so once again, this prophecy in Second Nephi, it doubles down on the prophecy back in First Nephi. First, it was declared that this nation would become the most powerful nation on earth above all other nations. And now it is saying that God himself will fortify this land against all other nations and that any that come against it will perish. The great British empire that once came against the United States of America is no more with its many colonies around the world since reverting back into the hands of the people indigenous to those lands. England is now a mere shadow of its former glory. The same can also be said for France, Spain, and Mexico. Even the mighty USSR eventually collapsed, and we have enjoyed these protections only in as much as we who occupy this land serve the God of Israel. As we become more godless, pagan, or selfish, and unchristlike in our conduct, the grace and protection we have historically been afforded is no longer a guarantee. However, this we do know, that the covenants God made with the seed of Joseph, and by extension the seed of Lehi, shall be fulfilled. And the new Jerusalem shall be built on this promised land, according to the Book of Mormon. And that we, the Gentiles, if we will repent, we may be numbered among the seed of Israel. In a future podcast, I would like to talk a bit about the promises made to Lehi's seed and the things that are now transpiring, the signs and the indications of the fulfillment of these covenants. But this will conclude this episode of the podcast. If you have any questions or would like to share something, feel free to email me at teacherinzion at gmail.com. That's teacherinzion, all one word, no spaces, at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless. Join us for discussion in our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hope of Zion or at our YouTube channel, Teacher in Zion. That's the word teacher, space, and in Zion spelled as one word. My books can be found at amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Douglas Hatton. That's H-A-T, like a hat on your head. T-E-N, like the number 10. Until next time.